Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Oedipus, the podcast where we explore the culture of beer. And I'm your host, Danny Walker. This show was recorded live from Studio Oedipus in Amsterdam North. I was joined by Victor Brangolo, the lead designer here at Oedipus. Our guest for the show today is Boris de Bayer, who is a Dutch artist. Together with Victor, we explore his craft, his relationship with his father, and how he has recently become a father too, and how that has affected his work, and also a little bit about the art community. As well as the conversation with Boris and Victor, the three of us review a new beer by Valhalla Brewery, our neighbours here in Amsterdam North. I also discuss what is in the fridge with Elaine, a beer sommelier, chutney maker, and who also works at Amsterdam's premier beer cafe, The Wildermon. And of course, there's the infamous quiz at the end. I want to hear your feedback, how are these shows going, so please get in touch with me, radio at oedipus.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you all enjoy the show. Okay, hello and welcome to the show. I'm uh, happy to be here with Victor Brangolo, the lead designer here at Oedipus, and also Boris de Beicher, another artist. He's going to join us for an interview, but to start off the show, we're going to do the weekly beer review. And luckily, we have some fresh beer from Valhalla Brewery, which are a local brewery for not only us in Amsterdam, but here at Oedipus, their brewery is located only about 100 meters from ours. And this week, we are trying their Aphrodite Sour, Raspberry Sour Ale. So without further ado, Victor, would you mind cracking open the can? Oh, sure. It's a pleasure. And and Boris, yeah, yeah. Crack it open, yeah. So yeah, the the sound doesn't disappoint. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's just sweet. The sound beautiful. It's usually the the job of the co-host to do the the beer review. So would you mind kicking us off? I have to say the color of that beer, Aphrodite, matches perfectly the label. If yeah, you yeah, if you cool. ever check this beer and this can, it's really that sort of, uh, I would say, fresh, f- fleshy pink. That's uh, just come on your cheek when you get a soft kiss or a, a gentle uh, touch. That's exactly that. And then, so nose now. I think it's very, very blood orange uh, color to me. It, it does, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But it, it also has a lemonade-y, like yeah. you described, like a sweet. The, f- yeah. the, f- the foam is really white uh, and soft pink, so it's really interesting. Uh, the aroma is not... For me, it's similar to the taste. The taste has really that raspberry uh, coming through, like in the back. But the the nose is a bit more, for me, herbal. Yeah, it's quite herbal, I think. Mm-hmm. Quite f- quite floral, I would say. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure. It's not super sour. I don't think it's that sour. And I'm, you know what? Contra- uh, a bit controversial. I'm not getting that much raspberry. Oh, yeah. I may have I had it uh, right from the first sip. Yeah, me too. I, I expected less raspberry, and now I'm surprised oh. by how fruity. Also, it, indeed, in the mouse feel, it's uh, really um, uh, light. So you yeah. get the first uh, kick of the um, of the bubbles, and then it's really like yeah, soft. I would yeah. say yeah, sure. so. It's probably yeah. Aphrodite. Yeah, but super fresh. The beer. We, yeah. uh It was. It's not a very well. 
I'm I'm not 100% sure, but I think it's a brand new beer. It's not on their website. And uh, shout out to Paul from the brewery who uh, told me they had this fresh last week. Maybe it's good since I'm sat here with two artists to get a little artist perspective on the can. What <laughs> yeah. do we think? So it comes in, a small, comes in a small can. Yeah, I mean, color-wise, it... it I'd say it uh, it does the trick very well and it resembles uh, very well what's inside of the can. When it comes to the graphics, uh, personally, I'm a bit yeah surprised by the choice of the lady that's on on the label. It's not much a problem, but it's maybe just the style in general that is. Uh, it ha- I I, f- I know what it is. It has something uh, from a a young girl's kids book. I mean, for those who know Valhalla or those who don't know. Valhalla has been doing a lot of beer related to uh, gods. So that's why each beer has a god name and there's a unique illustration for each god. So this Aphrodite is indeed very girly. Um, I really, I usually really like their labels. Yeah. I think the difference maybe between this one and the other is that she's on a sort of a landscape while the other is really the god itself. Yes. Yeah, yeah in the space, like being some sort of an icon. Here, it's, it has a bit of more of that cartoon uh, yeah. uh, touch yes. or more, let's As say. As if she is relaxing on the beach. Yeah. Which also makes makes you think that this might be a beer that is meant for girls on beaches. I could definitely drink this yeah. uh, on a hot, hot sunny day. I yeah. think it's yeah. quite refreshing. I think enough. it's it's a really good a beer for apero like uh, like you start yeah, yeah. Uh, with this mm. fresh and kick it's uh, definitely yeah. yeah i think so but but even on a gray day like this it's still good yeah, yeah. it's fresh it's uh, it's really uh, uh in summer it has a lot of this yeah it's easy i think it's yeah it's a really nice beer to discover i think all right well uh, thank you gentlemen and uh thank you very much valhalla all right that's the beer review hello and welcome to boris de Beicher. An independent Dutch artist whose work and craft has led him to make colourful and unique objects as well as other things. He has also been a long-time collaborator with Oedipus Brewing. He makes our rather beautiful, uh, obscurely shaped tap handles. And today we're going to talk a little bit with him and with Victor, our in-house designer, about what has shaped Boris as an artist and just a little bit about art, I guess, in general. So how are you doing, Boris? I'm fine, thank you. I, I uh, also had a really relaxing, easy weekend. I went fishing on a oh. boat. Oh, right, okay. Even went far, um, yeah, like offshore, like a couple of miles offshore. I got uh, seasick within five minutes. Beautiful. Didn't catch anything, So, but it was a really beautiful uh, beautiful day. So I'm, I'm relaxed. Good. I'm, I'm fine, yeah. Better on land, probably. Yeah, this, the minute I, I had my first food on land, I felt a bit better already. So, Boris, your work as an artist, I want to try and walk in your footsteps a little bit. What does a normal day for you look like in the studio? Yeah, um, it depends a little bit, but since, uh, and I think we're going to talk about that later too, uh, you know, my, my daughter was born, I have like a lot of routines, and uh, usually I wake up um, around six. Yeah, okay. It's pretty early, I, uh, I make a, a lot of coffee, um, you know, like start the day off with my daughter, and... Um, yeah, uh, at some point I drive to the studio because I have my uh, my atelier, my studio in Harlem, and I live in the Hague, so that gives me an hour uh, of driving each day, like two two times a day, and especially in the morning, it's always kind of nice. I like driving, and uh, you know the route 
uh, itself is quite uh, quite nice, quite scenic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still Holland after all, or, so it's not that scenic, mm-hmm. but it does the trick. And um, when I'm at the studio, the first part of the day usually is uh, uh, yeah a bit slow. I, I drink some coffee, I walk around a lot, and usually to get kind of in the modus of working, I... Uh, clean some of the machines that I use a lot. So I have a couple of lathes. I don't know if you know what it is, but like mechanical, cool-looking machines. Okay. And um, or I sometimes I take the broom and like uh, sweep the floor a little bit. This helps me a bit with getting into the yeah, like the the general modus operandi, yeah. you know. And usually I also check some some of the mails. I do some phone calls in the morning and then. Get lunch. So this all sounds really relaxing. Like it hasn't. No, been, yeah. I think it sounds like the morning sounds very much like a preparation for the yes. afternoon. It's yeah. kind of like clearing the schedule a little yeah. bit, and even the drive sounds like it's kind of a meditative yeah. start to the process of your day. Yeah, it's like a yeah. preparation. Do you yeah. talk to your machine or uh, your tools? Do you did you give them no, names? No, I don't. I don't talk to them, <laughs> uh, but I do love them. You know, like uh, I, I don't know, but um, there's this understanding between us like some of the machines i've been working on for years now and uh you know i i know every little scratch on the paint surface and i know or in a way the machine tells me when it needs uh, a bit of oil or you know so there's definitely a lot of like emotion involved and i I get emotionally attached to my machines for sure and my tools that's beautiful because it's (laughs) it's the same with a brush and pen like you you have hard time to let go of your favorite pen or your brush yeah being uh, an artist that mostly works for yourself how i know i found it difficult managing my schedule yeah so how do you get out of bed in the morning this is the question i wanted to lead to but i guess it's different now having a daughter yeah i mean that makes a whole lot of difference uh but even before my daughter was born um i I don't know like my whole teenage years was really not disciplined you know I didn't go to school I, I didn't even finish high school so that came slowly with being at the art academy I got uh, yeah I mean that's something that I really liked and I think working m- with my hands in general is something that I always really look forward to uh, so it's not really hard uh, getting out of bed uh, and and starting to work I uh, I look forward to it even when I go to sleep you know like I'm always planning ahead a little bit like next day I'll be working on this or that piece and I'm going to use this and that machine and it's something that yeah it's uh it's one of the few things that I'm really good at and I really enjoy it so uh and I think in general maybe I'm also quite um ambitious in a way like uh there's always projects that I'm thinking about and uh, works that have to be made so there's always something to do what are you thinking about when you're making your objects what comes to mind? Because they are quite obscure, fascinating shapes. Yeah, so I think that um, the process is a bit divided in like uh, the, the 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 period that comes previous to making the projects um, and making the actual products. Because in, uh, for example, with the Oedipus tab handles, uh, I just talked to you before the show a little bit. It's like a production process. So in a way, it's almost a mindless kind of job. But previous to getting into this uh, production process, there's always a lot of like research and like where where do I get the inspiration from? That's very broad, you know, like I I get it from sci-fi movies. I listen to podcasts a lot. Uh, I collect old, uh, how do you call it, like encyclopedias. 
uh, especially the old ones, they really form like even like the the general layout of these encyc encyclopedias. They are already a form of um, yeah inspiration or yeah. Uh, so that's really yeah like a bit separate from from making the actual products. When I make the products, I'm usually in this sort of flow, and if I'm lucky enough, I don't think about anything. You know, that's it's it's like a bit with like fishing you know you get into it and you kind of lose track of time and where you are and it's even sometimes um so bad or well i'm so concentrated that i have to set my alarm on my phone uh, in order to go home in time you know so uh, i remember when we visited your studio you showed mm -hmm. us all your sketches which uh -huh. were um tiny clay object right yeah and i was curious i'm curious now do you sometimes work them um eyes closed uh, no i don't i don't really do that um but i i rather have this like um how do you call it like very spontaneous approach to them so and what about the material that you use how, how do you make it what is special about that material that um, allows you to do what you do yeah the material that i i work with uh, is called uh, polyurethane Uh, or most that's the material I work with a lot and uh, it's I mean artificial or plastics in general are, are really interesting if you look at the, the history of plastics um, you know there was this period in which people were trying to depict more uh, like natural uh, materials such as ivory and uh, ebony wood things like that but they would only be uh, accessible for more elite people that had access to money And I think it was right around or like, yeah, the Second World War that people dove in or like got access to the, the, the wide range of possibilities that plastics had to offer. And so they uh, they found ways to um, imitate these, these materials uh, and make them available for a much uh, wider range of people, like people that, that weren't, like didn't have uh, a lot of money, let's say. And um, so that's already like the, the, the history of plastics are in itself is really interesting. And then for me personally, what I find super interesting is or uh, the, the process. So you, it comes as a liquid or two component liquids. Mm -hmm. You can, um, uh, you know, color them, pigment them in any way you like. Uh, that gives a lot of freedom as well. Mm -hmm. And um, there's this point where, uh, because I, I use a lot of malt, like silicon malt to cast this yeah. um, liquid in, uh, there's this moment where you it settles, so the, the material is liquid, and within, depending on which material you use, like which specific kind of polyurethane you use, it settles, and uh, usually within like five to ten minutes, there's this hard, solid shape, and if you get it out of the malt, Uh, nobody has ever touched it before, you know, so it's the f you're the first person yeah. to touch it. And it's every time I do it, it's it's a bit of magic because, uh, like you said, Victor, I make my objects usually in, in, in clay or other materials that aren't plastic. And so I leave like little tiny uh, mistakes into the surface of the material. So you can see my uh, fingerprints or like a scratch of my nail or a scratch of a tool. It can be anything. And this copies every time you use the malt. So you can see your fingerprint on every piece you make. And I find that yeah. fascinating yeah. because it's in a way like I always have to think of this scene in Jurassic Park where 
uh, you know, they have this piece of amber with uh, the mosquito in it. And yeah, I mean, of course, it's very different. It's an artificial material, but in a lot of ways, it's also a bit the same. It's like you're creating a fossil for the future. Yeah. How important is the idea of using uh, waste materials? Yeah, it became increasingly more important because, I mean, it's unavoidable to talk about this when you're using materials that I'm using, like resins or plastic or any kind of artificial material, because there is, uh, of course, an abundance of the material. So, yeah, quite soon this this question arises of, like, uh, should you even add more material to the already existing problem? Um, I, I'm, I'm still struggling a little bit that, a little bit with that. Um, but what I do, um, like I think of it like my work per se is not meant to be part of this um, uh, how do you call circular economy, <laughs> sorry, yeah, the, yeah. the circular economy. Yeah. They are meant to, to either be used like you use them, but even if it's meant um, as a, a, a practical object, I think that it has a certain value. It's like a, a tiny artwork. And in general, my work is meant for people uh, that collect uh, art or design or, uh, you know, so it's it's a bit, in a way, separate from a, a piece of plastic that you use once and throw away. Yeah. And would you one day switch to, if you could, entirely re yes. re recycle material? Well, I'm at this point now, um, you might know this, I've been working also with Oedipus for, for 10 years now. I started almost right after graduating. Um, so that also means, I mean, I have been doing other things as well. I'm working with completely different materials, such as metal and wood. But in general, my focus and what I'm known for most is working with resin. And after 10 years, or maybe 11 now, 10, I don't know, um, I'm in a way also a bit ready for leaving it behind me completely, you know, uh, uh, I have been, I, I don't know, I mean, like, there are some projects uh, projects in the pipeline now, like, for example, working with glass. And uh, since the crisis that we had, the corona crisis, there were less uh, commissions to be worked on. So I had some extra time. I made a toy box, a big toy box for my uh, daughter in wood. These things, they really, like, opened up uh, something in me that made it even more clear for me that... I want to move on from... I'm not saying I'm going to stop using resin because there's still so many things to be done and so many... Uh, it has so many possibilities. You can use it in so many ways. It would be a waste to stop it completely, but it won't be my main focus after, I think, this coming months in a way already. Changing your path direction uh, from changing your material of working... You've been working with plastics for like 10, 15 years now. Is that quite... Uh a difficult challenge that you see, uh, like changing, maybe you're known for your work with the plastic. Is that quite a challenge, you would say? Yeah, I, for sure. And has also been the reason why I haven't done it before, you know, because exactly the reason that I want to stop working with it uh, is also the reason why, uh, where that I am here, where I'm now, you know, like today, because people know me for this and I've been doing a lot of stuff and in a way I yeah I mean it sounds I, I don't want to sound arrogant at all but I'm a bit of an expert now within this uh, range of working with plastics yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, sure. uh, yeah that has been a challenge and that's why I'm also saying that it's it's not 
you know, like I'm not saying I'm not going to work with it at all anymore, you know. How do you find the right balance in between commissioned work and your own work? It depends a little bit. But in general, for me, it goes really well with this balance. Um, most of the times, it depends on the commission, of course, but I, I really like commissioned work because it also gets you places where you normally... It, it kind of pulls you out of your comfort zone. So um, in that sense, it's a challenge you, a lot of the time. And like I said before, like this sort of production process that usually comes along with making commissioned work, uh, where you get into this flow and you don't have to think all the time about what you're doing because that, that comes obviously with being an artist or designer. Or, uh, to to kind of like leave that behind me for a while, is it, it frees me a little bit. So, um, And of course, there's another advantage of you know, getting commissioned work is that it usually pays a lot better than your free work, like your autonomous work. And so I always see it also as a a way to finance my, my own work. Uh, and so far that has worked really well. Um, I think that also amongst colleagues, they always say like, yeah, but Boris, you, you get a lot of commissions, right? And uh, I, I almost sense that this is something that a lot more artists would want to to have, you know. So, but of course, I have ran into situations where the commission itself uh, turned out to be, uh, you know, where the the amount of of creative freedom, so to say, was actually limited by what a a certain uh, uh, party wanted from you. Yeah, yeah, and that's frustrating, I guess. That can be very frustrating, especially if the communication isn't really good. And yeah. uh, I mean, it, it isn't always good. Uh, I've worked a lot with people that have no uh, idea what it means to be an artist or to work as an artist or a designer, and so they sometimes have these. Um, uh, yeah, to, to to set an example, like you could be far in your process. And all of a sudden, they want to change the, you know, they said, yeah, this is this is actually not what we wanted. We want something. We had more this and this and that in mind. And you're already at a point where you're ready to finish it, you know. Yeah. So this has happened to me quite some times. And that can be very frustrating. So, But I think it's, it's over time, you also find ways to better deal with that. Uh, and so have I. So, um, like, if now there's a new client that wants a certain thing or work with me on a commission base, then from the beginning on, I set the uh, the, f the framework up and explain them what I do. And uh, yeah, you make like hard uh, agreements for it. Yeah. yeah I mean, between your artwork, your personal work, and your commission work, mm -hmm. are you harder judge for yourself? on your free work or on your commission work? How do you oh, yeah. self, uh, let's say, judge yourself? I judge myself. Yeah. <laughs> well, because working uh, in commission, there's always a aspect of time. And um, yeah, you tend to, to finish it within that time. So there's, there's a rush involved. And sometimes that accidentally applies to my free work. And I think that's maybe not... A very positive aspect of that you know like I, I i also over the years started uh thinking more in the value of time so that means that sometimes i kind of like speed up in order to have like certain sketches finished and that could be 
negative like it has negative effects on on the outcome of the sketches because yeah sometimes especially like the 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 work that comes before actually making the object like the the the, the research period you could say yeah you shouldn't rush that you know and uh, you share your studio, your atelier with your father, I've heard, right? Yes. That's quite a special thing, quite a special relationship. How does that influence your work? A lot, but uh, I think that um, my father always influenced me a lot. He's an artist too. And um, he got a proper old school training. I mean, he went to the ateliers that is like a, a postgraduate uh, course here in Amsterdam. It's well known, but he also... Um, got like a proper uh, sculptor's training so he knows how to deal with material if you give him like a lump of clay and you you tell him now make a frog's face then he does it within like five seconds and make a chicken and he does that so he has like this he has a really good feeling for material and yeah you know when I was really young he took me to the studio and it was like this completely different world there were like all this like i wanted to call them flamethrowers but like gas burners and <laughs> big material welding machines as a child they were as a child yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah yeah. as a child they were flamed exactly so and he has been doing like so many things working with metal working with clay he draws a lot like his the studio is still like this i mean it's a lot better now that i moved in but when he was still there, was like this huge, interesting mess, like almost an otherworldly kind of studio. It, it was the studio that you imagine an artist to live and work in. He didn't live there, but almost, you know, he was there almost all the time. So, yeah, um, I'm getting a bit off here. No, 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 this is great. I can see for, it's great to see like uh, so much passion in you when you started talking about your dad. It's good. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I have that. Uh, like he, he was an example for me and he still is. Uh, so sharing the studio now is great. I mean, he focuses on drawing a lot and uh, he has yeah, an endless amount of work that he still has to select. And so he's usually, he's a bit more, he quiet down a little bit. And um, whereas I'm doing like the more like the rougher, like uh, physical work now. And he still comes down from time to time because I, I kind of moved him up now. <laughs> Uh, there's two floors in the studio and uh, he comes down and he like whenever he gives advice it's always good advice mm -hmm. you know so and whether that's technical or more like into the uh, like an advice on on how to approach my own autonomous work usually I mean it's not always nice to hear like to have like somebody especially somebody that's so close like your father critique your work but usually he's uh, he's really, he has a point so yeah. Um, yeah, definitely he, uh, he's, he has always been an influence and he still is, so yeah. Does it get competitive in the studio? Not at all, um, but we had have some situations where I, I asked him for help, advice, and he got so into the idea, like so enthusiastic about it that he, without knowing it, kind of took over. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to put a brake on him and maybe I shouldn't have done it, but... Uh, yeah, no, it doesn't get competitive. He's easy to talk to, and uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah. I think he's he's also proud of what I'm doing, so he he just encourage encourages it a lot. Yeah. yeah. Well, congratulations on recently becoming a father yourself. Yeah, thank you. How uh, how much has has it affected your work in the last year? Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, I think a lot on a practical level. Um, I remember um, that just before becoming a dad, like the actual few months before uh, 
my girlfriend gave birth to Sully. Um, I got a little bit nervous, and I think that's maybe something that a lot of guys, or at least in my environment, experience a bit. So I, I started talking to the few um, fathers, dads that I, I knew that were my age and had like similar careers. And they all kind of um, comforted me by saying that, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, basically they said, you get a lot more practical when you have a kid. You know better how to deal with time and you'll be able to say no to certain things because you just know that it, it's not going to take you where you want. And that uh, sounds very cliche, but that, that happened to me too. So I, in a way, it's easier to say no to certain questions from people that want something from me because I just know that it either won't be something uh, that will bring me any further or it's something that I won't make enough money from, like as simple as that. And again, this uh, aspect of time plays an important role because uh, I have a lot less time now that my daughter is there. And uh, yeah, sometimes also like if if you wake up at six and that's when I'm lucky, let's say, uh, you, you could be very tired. So there's a pressure to do within the limited time you have to do as to get as much out of it as possible. So on that practical level, it had, has influenced, uh, has had a big impact. But so far, I, I experienced it as, as yeah, very great and very positive. But of course, there is um, uh, an extra reason to, yeah, to, to do your best, you know, to do the best you can. And uh, not only because you have to provide for your family, it sounds also so cliche, but I mean, it's true. But also because, yeah, you, you, you have a daughter, you know, you, you want her to be proud. And um, yeah, so in the, I think in that sense, maybe you become a little bit more ambitious or driven, you know. Yeah, yeah I understand. I can that. imagine that. Yeah, yeah. You've mentioned it already, but you said that you're a keen fisher. And and I know that how the conversations developed as well. It seems like your free time is uh, very minimal as well, being a, a father. But one of my questions was, in your free time, how do you like to relax? I, I like to go fishing. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean... Well, uh, let's talk about this because it yeah. seems like there's a lot of parallels in between how you do your work. We've talked about this art of being meditative. And yeah. I thought it was quite fascinating how you like fishing to just be this relaxing process as well. It's also more that I'm really an outdoors kind of person. So I love being outside and I love the water. And fishing is, of course, like uh, it has all those things combined. So um, it's something that really, really relaxes me. And uh, it's it's for me, uh, it's not even so much about catching it uh, or catching fish, but... Uh, there is a certain excitement to catching a fish. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I can be very passionate about, passionate about it and uh, maybe even a little bit fanatic maybe. Um, and that's because th- there's a whole lot of as- aspects to fishing. You, you, you know, you have the going outside part of it, being in nature. Um, there's also this thing of the material that you use. I, I love the fishing gear, yeah. you know, yeah, for sure. Like, yeah. I, and the Nothing. lures the lures ex- the, i mean if you look at those lures they are beautiful. and you look at my work it's <laughs> like there is an overlap yeah, yeah it's yeah, you're luring us into uh, you are fishermen of us that's a sharp observation because that's what i'm trying at least ah yeah. they are hooks actually they are not uh, what they are supposed to be and of course you know like i, I made these, these sort of long spears that i didn't even see it but 
people told me, yeah, they, these look like floats, you know. So there's a, a sort of funny over overlap. For example, um, fishing in the Netherlands is also quite interesting because, yes, uh, you know, you like to go outside here, but in a way you're always reminded of people or like human civilization. Uh, last weekend I went sea fishing and then you basically take the boat and you sail it through the North Sea Channel, the North Sea Canal, up to Amuiden, and that's where the hoge ovens, like the, the steel industries are. And this is just... Yeah, it's a crazy world. It's 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 almost like a, a scene out of Blade Runner. You can get with the boat really close to these ovens. Yeah. And there's all these different types of smoke and sounds coming from the from the industry, like the the area where they where they do this, where they produce steel, and it's huge. And in the meantime, uh, if you look in the water, if it's clear enough, you can see all this this life. So you can see uh, oysters, you can see eels. There is seals swimming around like last weekend there were like a couple of seals just around the boat um so this contrast between um nature in its purest form and uh, being confronted with like this industry, industry yeah. is is yeah this contrast is huge but it's it's in super interesting yeah. so i love that too and i think that's for me always has been part of it too yeah. so and I can imagine that being a fisherman that fly fish for salmon in Alaska, it's a different, uh, completely different thing. Also probably lovely, but it is very specific here in the Netherlands. So, And I liked it. Now, we've touched on it a little bit throughout this conversation, but you have been working together with Oedipus for quite some time now. And because this comes out in audio format, I thought it might be quite fun to see if we can describe what your tap handles look like without the use of uh, visual aids, you know? Okay, well, there's 10, ten shapes in general, but they look like sticks. <laughs> they look like sticks. Look like sticks. Um, but um, it's all in the details. So every, they're short sticks, let's say like not much more than 20 centimeters high. They have a lot of organic shapes in it. Uh, every surface is different. They have, uh, yeah, a strong sexual tone to them, but not too much. I mean, of course, it's something that a lot of people think about or like, you know, yeah. uh, I've, I've been hearing these things. I, I personally see it, but it's not uh, the only thing I see. You know, there's, uh, yeah, Victor, help me out here a little yeah, bit. Yeah, come on, right. Well, Victor, I, I your turn. How, would, how would you describe yeah, them in a couple I, of sentences? Well, I would add one more. They are magic sticks. Magic that, sticks, uh, that's yes. for me, yeah, what's really yeah, important. Yeah. I was looking for that. Because if you hold them in your hands, then you really imagine all the power you can get from them. Oh, right. That's a good point. Yeah. And yeah. I think while pouring a beer, that suddenly gives you this magic energy of uh, mm. flowing. Yeah. And when it comes to the object itself, I think they are really, um, yeah, sens sensual. Sensual is a better word than sexual. Yeah, sensual. sensual. Because yeah. all these little details and... Uh, I mean, if you close your hands, then uh, your eyes and your hands on it, mm. then you would get very inspired, I think. Yeah. Sensually. Yeah. That happens a lot with these s kind of shapes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, guys. Yeah. Well, that's that's beautiful. We need to head over to uh, Boris's website. What it, would we be able to view them there and on the Oedipus yeah. website as well? Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you want to uh, mention let my everyone? Website? Yeah. 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 <laughs> www. dot com.
All right, beautiful. Ooh, yeah, good yeah. plug. You, you, I think there probably is a link. Yeah, I will. Uh, I will yeah. attach the link to the podcast. To the don't podcast, worry, but yeah. uh, I'm sure we've left a lot of the listeners uh, with a desirable. I hope so. I, uh, mean, I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll take a little break, but thank you so far. This is going really well. Thanks. And uh, yeah. Okay, so now it's time to play What's in the Fridge. I'm going to call Elaine, who's at home, and find out what's in her fridge. Hello, hi Elaine, it's Danny, how are you doing? Hi Danny, how are you doing? I'm doing Good. very well, thank you, I'm very well. Now, can you let me know what's in your fridge? I can actually, <laughs> I'll just walk through it, okay? Oh great. Uh, because I have quite a few different bottles in my fridge at the moment. Well that's good to hear. I don't know if you can hear the, the sound of the squeaking door. <laughs> um, at the moment I have uh, two uh, two bottles of Orval. Orval, uh, oh nice. Yeah, from... Uh, from July of last year, bottled in July of last year. Okay. And one Driefontaine Oude Rose. And I have one from, uh, I have another bottle at the back of the fridge from uh, the Ale Apocrisy. Ale Apocrisy? Now I've not heard of them. Where are they based? They're uh, uh, an American brewer. Uh, They came to, we invited them last year for Carnival Bessonomitas. Oh, yeah. And I acquired... Uh, an extra case of their beers while they came over. Nice. So I have uh, I have their smothers in hugs. It's called. It's smothers a wild fermentation ale. Yeah. Nice. Which is uh, which is a nice beer. Great. Hopefully, I haven't tried it yet. To be honest. Yeah. So you say these so. beers all sound like you're saving them for uh, for an occasion or at least a rainy day. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Just the right time. (laughs) Just the right time, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Well, it's. um, I normally get two crates of Orville once a year when I go there to collect the ambassadorship uh, for In the Wildermann. Oh, right. Okay. And then I I, I drink one case just. normally and then i normally leave another another case just uh to have it for six months older or or longer okay all right great so that's why yeah nice and anything so, else anything that anything more uh fresh any more any ipas or anything no they're gone i drank them yesterday <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i understand i understand they go a bit quicker those ones don't they they do yeah yeah i like to drink them fresh i had uh Yesterday, or yesterday, the last one of uh, the Loki from uh, Valhalla. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, nice. Yeah. Yeah, so that was, uh, yeah, that went down the treat. Yeah, we drank uh, we drank one of their beers uh, earlier on the show. We had the Raspberry Sour, the Aphrodite, which I think is a brand new oh, beer yeah, of theirs fantastic. as well. Yeah, really yeah. nice beer. That was good. Um, I actually yeah. tried to get hold of uh, one of their beers uh, the week before, their Mango IPA, but it had sold out, but... They seem to yeah. be doing really good things at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I heard about the mango IPA too, it's, uh, but I haven't tasted it until it's already gone. Yeah, <laughs> I think it was uh, yeah, qu- yeah. hot, quite hot property, that uh, that beer. So is there anything else yeah. you've got in the fridge you can talk about? Uh, uh, not really, just, just, the, just the rest of the vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> just vegetables, all right. Yeah, I suppose you've got to leave some room for some food in there. Um, yeah, exactly. exactly all right. Yeah. 
All right, Elaine. Well, yeah. well, that is great to chat to you. Hopefully, uh, we can have a beer in the Vildemann uh, soon when it reopens. Um, yeah, yeah. Let's hope for that. But, let's uh, hope for I will that. be looking to uh, to to tap a lovely uh, couple of uh, lagers or a couple of yevers with a nice German tooth. Oh, brilliant! I miss uh, I miss I miss tapping beers. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I miss drinking those tapped beers beers <laughs> as well. All right. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, okay. th- thanks for chatting to me, Elaine, and uh, hopefully see you soon. Okay. Okay, no worries. Take care, Danny. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. All right, welcome back. I'm still here with Boris de Beicher and Victor Brangolo. Um, so, yeah, we were just talking off, off microphone a little bit about uh, the Rietveld. And I can see by doing some homework on yourself that you graduated do- as a jewellery designer from there. Um, at what point did you move towards more of an art direction with your work? Yeah. Um, actually, already when I was still in school, okay. uh, because when I was graduating or just before I was graduating, I uh, yeah I, I didn't really feel feel the need with my work to uh, make it wearable, uh, at least with most of the work. So I already had like a a, yeah, a big interest in in more like sculptural work, let's say like larger scale also, um, and then after graduating. Uh, yeah, I I got picked up by uh, a gallery that wanted to show my my yeah I'm like putting my fingers up now like between hooks uh, my jewelry pieces and I had like some you could say success with that and uh, after a while I I um, started with a completely different project uh, I um, I founded uh, Unfair Amsterdam which is like uh, an, an by now well-known art fair or platform and I, I didn't do that by, by myself I did it with a friend and later another friend got involved and uh, basically what we did was we invited uh, together with a team of curators we invited 40 artists that hadn't graduated longer than 10 years from the academy to each have a solo presentation uh, in you know in a in a on a location uh, but not in a standard uh, fair format, but we also got the architects involved to uh, design the, the set, basically, for, for all the artists to, to present their works in. And um, me too, I, I presented work there that wasn't at all um, uh, applied, so like no jewelry, but more like autonomous cultural work. And also like moving around in that world for a couple of years uh, gave me a lot of insights and yeah after that I just moved on so it, it was a sort of organic process and um, being trained as a jeweler uh, still influences me today as well uh, and I, I kind of see my own work uh, a bit as being on the cutting edge between design and art and where that used to be maybe something that uh, would make, for example, gallerists a bit insecure and also m- myself. By now, that is maybe my my uh, unique selling point. You yeah, know, yeah. like that that's what I do and that's what I'm I'm known for. I make I make goblets and cups. Uh, next week I make a light sculpture, and the week after I'm designing a fork. Uh, just mm-hmm. give like an example. You know, like yeah. yeah. So yeah. Unfair. This was kind of uh, something you would 
you founded with uh, some friends or some colleagues, yeah, I yeah, guess. Yeah. And was this in order to help new artists in, in yes, the scene? Yes, that was yeah, the idea. Give a platform for that, is yeah. that the idea? That was exactly the idea. This is, was right uh, when we started around the time that um, Dutch politician Halbe Zijlstra, like he, um, he came up with this new plan, like a new um, uh, begroting. Uh, financial plan and he he had made a lot of cuttings especially within like the cultural uh, sector like cultural fields and therefore um, my friend and I who originally started it we missed out on a couple of uh, exhibitions and we couldn't uh, get financed the way we wanted so we decided to you know start a platform that creates uh, opportunities for colleague artists in, in more or less the same range as we were like uh, just graduated and so on and uh, uh, but also create a, a, a platform for ourselves too and we started quite small um, but you know like I said before by now it, it's really something that a lot of artists uh, especially when they just graduated uh, are, are looking forward to being invited for you know and uh, it had a unique format because none of the artists had to pay anything. The only thing we asked from them was to be a part of it, be part of this community. And when we uh, accessed the location, when we had the location to start building, we asked them to be there to help set up this this plan, this the, 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 the fair itself with, with the artists together. So in that sense, they, they yeah, they did, didn't pay at all but they they put in some some time and effort mm -hmm. let's say yeah um and and that uh, on its turn helps again with like building this community so this this artist from from different field different um niches got to know each other and uh, uh you know they, they learn from each other and after the build-up is done you're still there for another week to present your work and that's not easy for for every artist uh, but they can look to, towards each other, to the neighbor, like, how are you doing this? And talk about it. And yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a very interesting period for me. Yeah, I just, yeah. I just wanted you to talk about it yeah. a little bit because from uh, reading a little bit about it and a bit about yourself, I found that it was a very refreshing uh, platform to have in the art world and very helpful for young artists. Um, and, yeah, you touched upon this idea of community and we see in the beer world that share the sharing of knowledge and helping each other out is a, is a big help in getting breweries and just the kind of overall community feel. And that seems to have... Uh, I, I always get it from speaking to people that were, were at the Rietveld. This is very similar as well. How important is that idea of shared community of yourselves uh, to help different artists, how important is that? Yeah, I think it's it's super important. I mean, I'm sitting here with Victor, <laughs> that I yeah. graduated with like 11 years ago, 10 years ago, and oh my god, yes, yeah. And um, I found that uh, I still, uh, in a way, like unknowingly, still get attracted to the people that I studied with, and I work with people that I knew from back then, and uh, yeah, it it really formed for me at least a base to you know, to work myself up from also. And that only by working together and keeping in touch with people. And I would say it's very important. And mm -hmm. uh, and it wor for me, it worked also. Yeah, I think it's, uh, of course, we are all uh, from different backgrounds. But mm -hmm. when you go through that school for at least three years, yeah. 
you all pass through the same filter and yeah. it's really interesting to see how people grow. Definitely, yeah. So for me, it's more on the graphic side, but I saw some of my former classmates who left graphic design for other practices, other that sharpen, let's say, their practice towards a specific research or yeah. expressions. I think it's it's as important as having a um, yeah, good group of friends or... Yeah, for <laughs> sure, yeah. And uh, yeah. all these people uh, go through different experiences. So you need that, I think, as an artist. Because maybe in art school, the notion of gathering is different than other studies where you go to students' association, you go yeah. to uh, maybe group like group activities. Maybe yeah. in art school, it's a bit different. It's less it's loser. But, yeah. but I'd say it's also not that different than being part of a fraternity in a way. You know, it's, it's in a way, it's, it's kind of a group. Um, I, I wanted to say closed group, but it isn't. I mean, um, but the idea of this uh, fr being part of a fraternity is that you, once you're done with your study, you you have this network, and this network I still have, and I think you probably mm -hmm. do too. And that's that was formed at the Rietveld. Yeah. 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 It seems like a very special institution. I think it seems really cool. And the Rietveld Academy had quite the the party scene back in the days. How involved were you in that, Boris? Yes. <laughs> I was go. deeply involved in, uh, <laughs> in the party scene uh, at that time. Uh, I loved it also. <laughs> it was fantastic. Um, yeah, I um, uh, actually write... Uh, when I was still studying, I lived in The Hague instead of in Amsterdam. So I, I always felt a bit like I was missing out on like the yeah. exciting Amsterdam things that were going on and the scene. As soon as I was in my graduation, I uh, I moved to Amsterdam, and that's where I, I met a, f a good friend of mine, also called mm -hmm. Boris, and uh, we turned out to have like similar interest in in music, especially like the older house music, the early dance music, and uh, uh, yeah, we we just from from started talking uh, within like uh, a couple of months, I think the first idea of a, a rave was born, and I think um, at that time. There was a huge need for for this specific kind of uh, party, like the the rave kind of. Mm -hmm. thing. I think now, like a couple of years later, all the new kids that are way cooler, they're doing this. Like they're organizing raves. Mm -hmm. I'm sure at the time there were also a lot of other people doing it, but not as it is now. It was it was special. Mm -hmm. And what was really interesting was that Boris came from a little bit of a different scene. Like he knew everybody in Amsterdam. Uh, like for models and yeah. other models. agencies, wow. yeah, yeah. Like I, see this guy in the sky. Like a special, <laughs> special time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's maybe a stupid example, but you know, like uh, he knew a lot of people, like uh, from being a photographer, a professional photographer, and and I just had like this whole scene of the Rietveld behind me, which is in a way quite similar and a lot of interesting people, and so this came together and um, in an in a, a dirty old basement and that's how we started and we invited actually f from back in the days famous house DJs to come play and this was a success I mean after the first party I think um, the second edition there was like a huge line of 100 meters of people <laughs> trying to get in yeah. and I was there yeah you were there you were in the line experienced yeah. It. Yeah. And it, was, it was disgusting in a way because this basement had ceilings that were like two meters high yeah it was really moist it was moist <laughs> to put it politely yeah and yeah it was fantastic i mean i still have like vcr footage of it and uh, oh wow I, I mean personally I, yeah i might have been to one or two parties that came close but mm. especially the first ones we did were really 
special. Yeah, yeah. they were uh, <laughs> yeah. unique. Indeed, what you said, people were looking for that. Yeah, people. Were I think in the that. art school, uh, there was a lot of clubs in town, obviously, yeah. but this sort of yeah. quick and dirty, yeah. ex like yeah. dynamic thing was needed. Yeah. Now, here at Oedipus, we're big fans of flavor, as you probably already know. And previously on the podcast, we spoke a lot about farming and local produce. How, how does flavor play a role in your life? Yeah, um, I was thinking about this question already earlier a little bit. Um, I think it does, it, it has a, an important role in my life. Uh, but I have to thank my mother for that. She was, tr yeah, she went to a, um, a Catholic uh, boarding school right. um, and she was taught by nuns and one of the things that that they taught there was cooking and so she has like a firm um, kind of background or like training in like the basics of cooking and uh, this was in this, the southern part of Limburg in so yeah, south south of the Netherlands mm -hmm. and this place is already f for Netherlands for Dutch understandings it's a place where they're a li little bit more Burgundies, Burgundic. Yeah, they enjoy life. They enjoy life, yeah, very well, <laughs> and they enjoy their their food. And so this is something that my mom had, and uh, yes, I was raised having proper good food on the table all the time, and therefore, I mean, I'm I'm also like I'm picky about what I eat, and I, I'm picky about the ingredients and. Uh, if you give me a certain amount of ingredients, I can make something from it because this is how I, I saw my mom do it. So, Awesome. Well, it sounds like uh, you have two fantastic parents. <laughs> I must say, <laughs> your father yeah, yeah, and your great. mother. Really, really great. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, uh, that brings us to the end of the interview. Thank right. you very much, Boris. That was Thank really, you. really good. But Thank you, Boris. Yeah. Like I said earlier, your time is not done yet. We still have the quiz. The maybe not maybe it's not infamous yet, but like we're getting to that stage of it being the infamous Oedipus quiz. Okay, so Victor is going to be the the scorekeeper. All right, so right. he's going to be my faithful assistant. Yeah, and this week's quiz is made up of a combination of some general beer knowledge, and then also for this edition, I've got a series of questions about brewery logos. I thought maybe I'd go for a bit more of an art direction oh, since we have okay. two artists here with me today. So, question number one. The most popular beer style is? Oh, um, I want to say Pilsner, but that's not the... the that's it. Pilsner, that's correct. It. Yeah. Well done, well done. Professional. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I'd start easy. Yeah, it's just to test the water. In which country would you be able to drink a whale beer? A whale beer. And can I ask a question about that? Yes. Whale beer meaning having something to do with the ingredient, whale? Yes, yes, I will not say too much. Okay, okay, okay. Um, Denmark? No, Ugh. close, it's Iceland. Ah, that's my second, yeah. Yeah, Iceland, and uh, yeah. just a little bit about it. I don't know too much a bit about whale beer, but it's, it's made from something to do with uh, testicles. Aha, uh -huh. okay. I would, I, I would so, try it. So the next question is, the word given to the process in which yeast converts sugar into alcohol and carbon dioxide gas. Would that be fermenting? Yes, I'll yes. accept that, fermentation. <laughs> uh, according to the I Amsterdam Tourist website, how many br uh, independent breweries are there in Amsterdam? Oh God, a lot. Yeah. Um, I, can, I, I can't be exact, but I would guess around 50? 
Ooh, no, Ooh, it's actually no. a lot lower. 13. Ah, 13. 13 known uh, breweries in Amsterdam. Yeah, thinking about the 50s or so, that maybe it's quite a lot a in, a in Amsterdam. In Amsterdam, yeah, 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 yeah. exactly, yeah. But uh, good one for having a guess. So now we're moving on to the next few questions, which are all about brewery logos. Some local, some international. We'll see how we go. Okay, so the brewery, local brewery with a logo containing an ostrich. Uh, yes, that's uh, Brouwerij het Ei. Correct. Well Correct. Done. International brewery that has a logo containing a golden harp. Golden harp, yeah, I know this one. Uh, no, no, but, but, no, 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 no. Okay, I, the correct answer is Guinness. Guinness. Guinness, oh God, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, traditional brewery which is identifiable with a pink elephant on their logo. Delirium? Yes, correct. Yeah. Well yeah. done. Yeah. An American brewery with a logo that has uh, a goose head on it. Yeah. Um, Quite well known. Yeah. I know it, but it doesn't pop up. Okay, the trick was in the name. It's Goose Island. Goose Island. Okay, okay yeah. the brewery which uh, the name begins with a C and the logo contains a golden crown. Say crown. <laughs> no, no. No. Oh, uh, trick well, uh, tricky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <sighs> no, no. Sorry, guys. Quite topical at the moment. It's Corona. Corona. Oh, corona. Okay. crown, of course. Uh, the final question is a Dutch brewery with GB as their logo. GB, GB, right? GB. No, it's Hulpener. Ugh, yes. Yeah. I drink that from okay, time to yeah. time. Yeah, sorry. All right, well, that brings us to the end. And what has score has Boris got? All right, so let me count. So number one, yes. Number two, no. Number three, so I will do one, two, three, four. Oh, four, right. Four out of ten. <sighs> okay, well, unfortunately, you haven't done enough yeah. to get to the top of the table, yeah, but yeah, still, yeah. still an okay score. I, I tried my best. You yeah. tried your best, yeah. but thank you for playing. It's been, and You're thank welcome. you for just being here in thank general. You. It's been a pleasure to, ha- yeah. to be able to interview you today, Boris. Thank you. And thank you, Victor, for joining me. You're welcome. I will make sure that all information for Boris's website, where you can view his work, are attached to this podcast. Yeah, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, please get in contact with us, radio at oedipus.com. I want to know your thoughts, and tune in next time. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye.